When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for Tales of Terror, only on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Moriarty, I thought so. Uh, what in this case is taking a most promising turn? Uh, Foreman, you'll return at once to the house in St. John's Wood. W- within ten minutes, I shall be there myself. Uh, When I knock over a chair in the drawing room, you'll overturn a lamp in the kitchen, uh, scatter smoke balls, and give an alarm of fire. Hello, and welcome to Reimagined Radio. I'm John Barber, producer and host. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Reimagined Radio celebrates the greatest detective who never lived, yet will always be immortal. You know him, surely, as the speaker of one of the most famous lines in the English language. Elementary, my dear fellow, elementary. No doubt you call him easily by name. Sherlock Holmes, consulting detective. As real as he may seem, however, Sherlock Holmes, the most famous detective ever, never existed, except in our imaginations. The character, Sherlock Holmes, was first introduced by Arthur Conan Doyle, a Scottish physician, in an 1887 novel titled A Study in Scarlet. With this episode of Reimagined Radio, we celebrate the immortal Sherlock Holmes as the greatest detective who never lived. Our celebration is directed by Barbara Richardson and performed by actors from Metropolitan Performing Arts based in Vancouver, Washington. Our story begins at 221B Baker Street, where Holmes and Dr. John Watson shared lodgings on the second floor. Watson has married and moved away. But perhaps missing the excitement of working cases with Holmes, he returns occasionally to visit. Today, he finds Holmes somewhat bored, feeling that his life is not offering enough excitement. We join them both at Baker Street, and follow their story as narrated by Watson's wife, Mary. My name is Mary Maudson Watson, wife of Dr. John H. Watson. We married three years ago and settled in our home together. My husband misses the adventure of following Sherlock Holmes, the famous detective, on his cases. And so he visits as often as possible. On a recent visit, my husband found Holmes draped in his hideous purple dressing gown, distractedly playing his violin. Ah, 
Watson, my dear fellow. Greetings. Do come in, please. How are you, Holmes? I'm delighted to see you. Perfectly delighted. Upon my word, I am. But, uh, I'm sorry to observe that your wife has left you? She has gone on a little visit. But how did you know? How did I... Well, how do I know anything? How do I know you've moved your dressing table to the other side of the room? Tell me now. How did you know all that? It's too simple to talk about. Face badly shaved on the right side. Always used to be the left. Light must come from the other side. Couldn't very well move your window. Must have moved your dressing table. <laughs> of course. But how did you know my wife was away? Well, where is your second waistcoat button, Watson? And, and, and uh, what is yesterday's boutonniere doing in today's lapel? <laughs> Marvellous. Elementary, my dear fellow, elementary. The child's play of deduction. I'm only doing it for your amusement before we pass on to more serious matters. Oh, what is it now, Holmes? Watson... My dear fellow, in the enthusiasm which has prompted you to chronicle and, if you will excuse my saying so, somewhat to embellish my little, uh, adventures, you have occasionally seen fit to introduce a certain element of romance, which struck me as being just a trifle out of place and difficult to achieve. I merely refer to this in case you should see fit at some future time to chronicle the case on which I am about to embark. The strange case of Professor Robert Moriarty. Moriarty? I don't remember even having heard of the fellow. No, Watson, you haven't. It is precisely this quality of invisibility that makes Professor Moriarty the Napoleon of crime. Sitting motionless like an ugly, venomous spider in the centre of his web, but that web having a thousand radiations, and the spider knowing every quiver of every one of them. And, within forty-eight hours, I'll have the lines drawn so tightly around him that he can't move. I'll arrest him and his entire gang. Why, Holmes, this is a very dangerous thing. My dear fellow, it's perfectly delightful. My whole life is spent in a series of frantic endeavours to escape from the dreary, commonplace of existence. For example, the day before yesterday I received in this room the King of Bohemia, who, it seems, was so indiscreet as to fall in love with a young English lady by the name of Irene Adler, and to make her a promise of marriage. But... The Adler woman married a gentleman, a Mr. Norton, and together they moved out of the country, never to return. Mrs. Norton died unexpectedly, leaving behind a sister and a considerable compromising evidence to the disadvantage of the king in the form of letters, photographs, and jewellery with inscriptions. The sister, Miss Alice Faulkner, is now being held in a house in St. John's Wood by a blackmailer who goes by the name of Chetwood. So far as you can see, dear Watson, a fairly ordinary case of blackmail hardly worth my attention. But last night, on my inspection, Professor Moriarty revealed himself, which renders the case far more important than I had expected. Uh, come in. Big pardon, Mr. Holmes. Yes, Billy. Uh, please meet Dr. John Watson, my colleague and confidant. How do you do, sir? Uh, w Watson, this is Billy the Buttons, one of my Baker Street Irregulars. He has been quite valuable to me in the current cases. It is a pleasure to meet you, Billy, I am sure. Uh, yes, Billy. What is it? Gentleman to see you by the name of Foreman. Show him in, Billy. Show him in. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Come in, Mr. Foreman. Uh, good evening, Inspector Foreman. Good evening, Mr. Holmes. Oh, Watson, this is Inspector Foreman. He is working undercover as Judson, the butler in the home of Mr. Chetwood, the blackmailer of St. John's Wood. Well, Foreman, any news? Yes, sir. This morning, a little after nine, Chetwood drove away in a four-wheeler. 
He returned about 11 with a Mr. Alfred Bassick. You know him, sir? Mm, yes. When I last had the occasion to meet Mr. Bassick, he got two years for safe-cracking. Go on, Foreman. Well, they went into the library where Mr. Bassick opened the safe where they'd been keeping the letters. Go on. In the end, the safe was empty. Hmm. The letters were gone. It seems like the Faulkner woman got them back somehow. They got them pretty excited. Bassick went out to send a telegram. I followed to learn its contents. Have you got a copy of it? Yes, yes. The telegraph agent gave me one. Here it is, sir. Oh, Moriarty. I thought so. Uh, Watson, this case is taking a most promising turn. Uh, Foreman, you'll return at once to the house in St. John's Wood. Within ten minutes, I shall be there myself. If I remember it correctly, the kitchen is immediately below the drawing room. Uh, Yes. Uh, When I knock over a chair in the drawing room, you'll overturn a lamp in the kitchen, uh, scatter smoke balls and give an alarm of fire. All other instructions remain unchanged. Very good, sir. Well, Watson, it begins to look like a most interesting evening. That is the nature of Sherlock Holmes. As he often says, he is bored. And the unusual cases that present themselves to his attentions are a welcome relief. When that happens, he is enthusiastically declares, The game is afoot! Ah, good evening. My name is Sherlock Holmes. Whom did you wish to see, Mr. Holmes? Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Chetwood. I'm here to see Miss Faulkner. Will you please hand this card to Miss Faulkner and say that I... I beg uh... your pardon, Mr. Holmes, but it's quite useless, really. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear it. Yes, Miss Faulkner is, I regret to say, quite an invalid. She is unable to see anyone. Her health is so poor. Ah, has it ever occurred to you, Mr. Chetwood, that she might be confined to this house too much? How does that concern you? It doesn't. I simply made the suggestion. Might like to think it over. Ah, What is your butler's name? Judson, sir. Ah, Very well. Judson, please take my card to Miss Faulkner and uh, say I wish to speak with her. Very good, sir. Oh, this really is too good. Why, of course, he can take up your card if you wish it so much. I was only trying to save you the trouble. Thank you. It's hardly any trouble at all to send up a card. Do you know, Mr. Holmes, you interest me very much. I have heard of the astonishing manner in which you gain information from the most trifling details. Now, I dare say, in this brief moment or two, you've discovered any number of things about me. Oh, nothing of consequence, Mr. Chetwood. I hardly more than asked myself why you were so distressed to see me at this particular moment and what there could possibly be about that safe in the lower part of that desk to cause you such painful anxiety. (laughs) Very good. Very good indeed. If those things were only true, now I'd be wonderfully impressed. It would be absolutely remarkable. Excuse me, sir. Ah, Judson. A message for you, Mr. Chetwood. You'll excuse me, I trust. It's from, uh, Miss Faulkner. Well, really. She begs to be allowed to see you, Mr. Holmes. She absolutely implores it. Well, I suppose I shall have to give way. Judson, ask Miss Faulkner to come down to the drawing room. 
Say that Mr. Holmes is waiting to see her. Very good, sir. Holmes, you'll find out in a very short time that it isn't safe to meddle with me. It wouldn't be any trouble at all for me to throw you out into the street. Possibly not, but trouble would swiftly follow such an experiment on your part. It's a cursed unlucky thing for you that I intend to call the police. Oh, no, you will not do it, I'm sure. Well, what makes you so certain? Because you will prefer to avoid an investigation of uh, your suspicious conduct, Mr. James Larrabee. Larrabee? That is the name under which you are known in Scotland Yard, uh, I believe, Mr. Chetwood. Ah, at last, Miss Faulkner, a pleasure to see you. You are Mr. Holmes? Yes. You wish to see me? Very much indeed, Miss Faulkner. But I'm sorry to see that you are far from well. Oh, no. I... No, I beg your pardon. What does this mark on your arm mean? Oh, nothing. Nothing? And the mark here on your neck? Plainly showing the clutch of a man's fingers. Does that mean nothing also? It occurs to me that I should like to have an explanation of this. Uh, possibly you can furnish one, Mr. Larrabee. How uh, should I know? It seems to have occurred in your own house. What if it did? You'd better understand that it isn't healthy for you or anyone else to interfere with my business. Ah, then it is your business. We have that much at least. Uh, pray, be seated, Miss Faulkner. I don't know who you are, Mr. Holmes, or why you are here. I shall be very glad to explain, indeed. Uh, I've been consulted as to the possibility of obtaining from you certain letters addressed to your sister, which are supposed to be in your possession. I cannot give up my sister's letters, Mr. Holmes. Uh, believe me, Miss Faulkner. There is nothing more to say. Good night, Mr. Holmes. But, my dear Miss Faulkner... Oh, uh, I'm so sorry. How clumsy of me to turn over this chair. Fire! Fire! Help! Help! Fire! What is it? What's going on? Fire, Mr. Checkwood, fire! Fire? Where? The lamp, sir. Lamp? The lamp in the kitchen, sir. It fell off the table and everything down there is blazing, sir. Quick, sir, come down. I'm coming. Don't alarm yourself, Miss Faulkner. There is no fire. No fire? A uh, distraction, arranged for. Uh, arranged for? What does it mean, Mr. Holmes? It means, Miss Faulkner, that I wanted a package of letters and that by following your eyes just now, when you thought there was a fire, I discovered that you'd hidden them in the upholstery of this chair. Uh, quite elementary, as you see. And now that they are in my possession, there seems to be no reason for me to remain any longer in this house. Good night, Miss Faulkner. Miss Faulkner? Yes? I... I can't take these letters, Miss Faulkner. They were written to your sister, but now they belong to you. What do you know about my sister? We met several years ago. She, like you, had in her possession letters and photographs that, if ever made public, would have created a devastating scandal for a gentleman from Bohemia. I used the same distraction with her I did with you just now to discover where she was hiding these items. When I returned the next day to claim them, she was gone. She had hurriedly married and moved out of the country, never to return. She left for me a photograph of herself and a note, in which she wrote, My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes... You really did it very well, until after the fire alarm I had no suspicion. But then, when I realized how I had betrayed myself, may I congratulate you on your success. 
I've treasured both her note and photograph ever since. You knew my sister. Yes, indeed. I had that pleasure. <laughs> what a woman she was, your sister. What a magnificent woman. More clever than I thought. She fooled me completely. I have admired her wit and cunning ever since. A woman that I shall never forget. Uh, but, oh, I, uh... <clears throat> I'm sorry, Miss Faulkner, both uh, for the loss of your sister and uh, perhaps stayed beyond appropriateness with my explanation. No, Mr. Holmes, I forgive you. But pray, how did you know that Irene Adler was my sister? Elementary, madam. The photograph. You are quite similar to your sister with regard to stature, physique and, uh, might I say so, beauty. The resemblance is quite striking. Well, you have caught me fair and square, sir. What will you do now with these letters? I find that I cannot keep them. Unless you can possibly change your mind and let me have them of your own free will. <laughs> I hardly supposed I could. I will therefore return them to you and... Uh... Oh, here's our friend, Mr. Larrabee, returning from the fire. So, you've got the letters, have you? Now I suppose we're going to see you walk out the house with them? On the contrary, you're going to see me return them to their rightful owner... Uh, Miss Faulkner, here are your letters. Should you ever change your mind and be so generous, so forgiving as to wish to return these letters to the one who wrote them, you have my address. In any event, rest assured that there will be no more cruelty, no more persecution in this house. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. You are perfectly safe with your property, Miss Faulkner, for I shall arrange that your faintest cry of distress will be heard and... If that cry is heard, it will be very unfortunate to those who are responsible. As for you, Mr. Larrabee, I beg you to understand that you continue your persecution of this young lady at your peril. <laughs> Good night. Now, Miss Faulkner, are you going to give me those letters? Are you going to give me those letters? <coughs> Miss Faulkner, do you give me those letters or do I break your arm? <coughs> He's got us watched. What I want to do is to leave it alone. Let Professor Moriarty have it. He'll settle it with Holmes pretty quick. I tell you, Professor Moriarty will get at him before noon tomorrow. And when he strikes, it means... Death. Professor James Moriarty, a criminal mastermind, controls a vast and subtle criminal organization under which he protects nearly all the criminals of England in exchange for their obedience and a share in their profits. He does not directly participate in the activities he plans, but only orchestrates the events. Sherlock Holmes called him the Napoleon of Crime. You are listening to Reimagined Radio. The episode is called The Immortal Sherlock Holmes and is performed by Metropolitan Performing Arts. I'm John Barber. We'll continue our story in just a moment. 
community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at ADCO1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Court-appointed special advocates for children, known as CASA, are volunteers who advocate for the best interest of children who have come into the care of the state as a result of abuse, neglect, or abandonment. You can lend your voice and volunteer with CASA to change a child's story. CASA offers virtual info sessions and training. If interested, now is the time to get involved with CASA and make a lasting difference in the lives of children and families in the foster care system. Clark County CASA is a program of the YWCA of Clark County. More information available at casaclarkcounty.org. Big thank you to Craft Cannabis, formerly known as New Vansterdam, for their ongoing support of KXRW Vancouver Radio. Craft Cannabis is Vancouver's premier cannabis market for those 21 years of age and over. Visit craftcannabis.com to view an order from their full online menu. And they offer in-store, curbside, and touchless pickup to better serve you. Craft Cannabis is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at craftcannabis.com. You are listening to Reimagined Radio, and we are celebrating the immortal Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is the most famous of all fictional detectives, and stories about his exploits are considered some of the finest of the detective fiction genre. But Holmes is not the first example of either. We might highlight two stories, The Merchant and the Thief and Ali Khawaja from the Arabic literary work one thousand and one nights as the earliest examples of fictional detectives who uncover clues and present evidence to catch or convict criminals. The Murders in the Rue Morgue, eighteen forty one, The Mystery of Marie Roger, eighteen forty two, and The Purloined Letter, eighteen forty four, all by Edgar Allan Poe, all featuring Poe's detective C. Auguste Dupin introduced the detective fiction genre to the English-speaking world. Wilkie Collins, a protege of Charles Dickens, introduced now-familiar detective narrative elements like the red herring, the inside job, the skilled professional investigator, the large number of suspects, the reconstruction of a crime, and the final plot twist in his 1868 novel, The Moonstone. Also in 1868, Monsieur Lecoq, a novel by Emile Gaborro, introduced a French detective adept at disguise, which became a key characteristic for other fictional detectives. Arthur Conan Doyle drew on this literary tradition when he created his detective, Sherlock Holmes. But to a large part, Doyle based his character Holmes on Dr. Joseph Bell, for whom Doyle had worked as a clerk while a medical student at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. Doyle modeled Sherlock Holmes's acute observation, deductive reasoning, and forensic skills on those exhibited by Bell. This reimagined radio celebration of the greatest detective who never lived continues the tradition. So far in our celebration, Holmes has taken a case focused on Professor James Moriarty, the Napoleon of crime. 
He has called on Alice Faulkner, and they have had a moment. What will happen next? Let's continue with our story. Sherlock Holmes is getting to be quite the bother. And now this Larrabee job. He's in on that too. And that's where he's made his mistake. Mr. Holmes is playing rather a dangerous game, Basic. Yes, sir. <laughs> this Holmes is rather a talented man, but he doesn't realize who opposes him. I might call on him myself, just for the satisfaction of it. Hmm... Baker Street, isn't it? His place? Baker Street, eh? Baker Street, sir. We could make it safe. We can make it absolutely safe with the three streets in every direction. We've done it over and over again elsewhere. Police decoyed, men in every doorway. Do this tonight in Baker Street. At nine o'clock, call his attendants out on one pretext or another and keep them out, you understand? I'll see this Sherlock Holmes myself. I'll give him a chance for his life. And, Basic? Yes, sir? Notify the last car that I may require the gas chamber at Stepney tomorrow night. Those militiamen from the Indian subcontinent will make everything ready. And have a crew there at a quarter before ten. Hmm. Tell Larrabee I shall want him to write a letter to Mr. Sherlock Holmes, which I shall dictate. Meet me here at seven. And, Basic, place your men at nine tonight for Sherlock Holmes's house in Baker Street. You'll go there yourself, sir. I will go there myself. But this meeting tonight, sir, to get him in the gas chamber. If I fail to kill him in Baker Street, we'll have him in Swandham Lane. Either way, I have him, Basic. Two strings to our bow. Two strings, eh, Basic? <laughs> <laughs> That evening, Holmes and Watson dined together at Scott's at Piccadilly Circus. After dinner, they attended a concert in Queen's Hall. Holmes, well knowing that his life was in peril, sat in the most perfect happiness, listening to the Spanish composer virtuoso Pablo de Sarastate play the violin, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music. With the concert ended, Holmes and Watson prepared to leave. Come, my dear Watson, let's go. Home to Baker Street. I have an idea that very soon we shall be receiving a most interesting visit. As they came down Baker Street, they could see the light burning on the second floor of 221B. They proceeded up the dark, narrow stairs. The valet, Billy, was waiting for them. Mr. Holmes, 
Holmes? Uh, yes, what is it? Oh, Mr Holmes, there's a letter for you, sir, on the table. Delivered ten minutes ago. Hmm. Uh, read it, Watson, while I put on my dressing gown. I have the honour to inform you that Miss Faulkner has changed her mind regarding the letters, etc., which she wished to obtain and has decided to dispose of them for a monetary consideration. Hmm. If you wish to negotiate, be at the guard's monument at the foot of the Waterloo Palace at nine o'clock. You will see a four-wheeler with wooden shutters to the windows. If you have the cab followed or try any other underhanded tricks, you won't get what you want. Let me know your decision. Yours truly, James Larrabee. <laughs> what does the fellow mean? This fellow means to sell me a base imitation for a large sum of money of certain letters which he does not possess now. See if I have the points. Tonight, nine o'clock, Guards Monument, cab with wooden shutters, no one to come with me, no one to follow. Or I don't get what I want. Quite right. Ah, the game is afoot. But this cab with the wooden shutters. Oh, merely to keep me from uh, seeing where they're taking me. But, my dear Holmes, this fellow means mischief. This fellow means the same. I beg your pardon, sir. A message came over from the chemist on the corner of St. Mary's was hit by a bus. Looks like his leg is broken. And will Dr. Watson kindly step over and help till the ambulance comes? Oh, yes, certainly. I'll, I'll go at once. I'll be back in a minute, Holmes. Uh, uh Billy? Yes, sir. Who brought that message? Boy from the chemist, sir. Uh, yes, of course. But which boy? Must have been a new one, sir. I ain't seen him before. Billy, uh, get downstairs quickly. Look after the doctor. If the boy's gone and there's a man with him, it means mischief. Let me know. Don't stop to come up. Uh, ring the bell. I'll hear it. Ring it loud. Yes, sir. It's a dangerous habit, Mr. Holmes, to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's dressing gown. I give you my word, Professor Moriarty, you'll be taken from here to the hospital if you keep your hand beneath you like that. Ah, oh, that's better. Hmm? Put your revolver on the table. You evidently don't know me. I think it's quite evident that I do. Pray, have a chair, Professor. I can spare you five minutes. That is, if you have anything to say. It is your intention to pursue this case against me? That is my intention, to the very end. I regret this. Not so much on my own account, but on yours. I share your regret, Professor, but solely because they're a rather uncomfortable position it will cause you to occupy. May I inquire as to what position you are pleased to elude, Mr. Holmes? I refer to the position you will occupy at the end of a rope, Professor Moriarty. Holmes, listen to me. On the 4th of January, you crossed my path. On the 23rd, you incommoded me. And now, with the close of April, I find myself placed in such a position through your continual interference that I am in positive danger of losing my liberty. Hmm. Have you any suggestions to make? No, I have no suggestions to make. I have a fact to state. If you don't drop it at once, your life's not worth this. I came here this evening, Mr. Holmes, to see if peace could not be arranged between us. Hmm, quite so, quite so. 
You've seen fit not only to reject my proposals, but to make insulting references coupled with threats of arrest. You've been warned of your danger. You don't heed that warning. Oh, I have taken your gun, Moriarty. Your threats bring me no fear. I will ask you to leave my house now. Billy? Yes, sir? Will you please show Professor Moriarty the door? Yes, sir. This way, sir. Don't ever say I didn't warn you, Mr. Holmes. Uh, no, no, Professor Moriarty. No, I never will. You are listening to Reimagined Radio. This episode is entitled The Immortal Sherlock Holmes and is performed by Metropolitan Performing Arts. I'm John Barber. We'll continue our story in just a moment. Programming like this is brought to you through the generous support of our founding sponsors at ADCO, Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's ADCO, the number one, dot com. This is John Barber, producer and host of Reimagined Radio. I want to thank you for listening and ask for your help supporting community radio. Community radio works because people volunteer their time and effort. But it takes more than volunteerism. It takes money to pay the rent, the utilities, licenses, and other expenses that keep a community radio station operating. A smile and handshake won't work. So I'm asking you to help your community radio station keep serving your community with locally focused programming and information. Visit the website of your community radio station and engage with the donate button. Monthly contribution schedules are available, often with swag you can wear or use to show your support. You can also make a one-time donation. Remember, community radio stations are generally non-profit organizations and your contribution may be tax deductible. Thank you for your help supporting community Community Radio. Court-appointed special advocates for children, known as CASA, are volunteers who advocate for the best interest of children who have come into the care of the state as a result of abuse, neglect, or abandonment. You can lend your voice and volunteer with CASA to change a child's story. CASA offers virtual information sessions and training. If interested, now is the time to get involved with CASA and make a lasting difference in the lives of children and families in the foster care system. Clark County CASA is a program of the YWCA Clark County. More information available at casaclarkcounty.org. Big thank you to our friends at Boomerang Therapy Works and home of the KXRW Studios. Boomerang is the only physical therapy facility in Vancouver and Portland that specializes in the treatment of neuromuscular disorders and brain injuries like Parkinson's, MS, and stroke. They opened Boomerang to bring premier treatment to their patients. Find Boomerang Therapy Works in action on Instagram or Facebook and see how their patients are inspired in their recovery. They can be reached at 360-258-1637. That's 360-258-1637. One six three seven. This is Reimagined Radio, and we are celebrating Sherlock Holmes, the greatest detective who never lived, but will always be immortal. This celebration begins with a stage play written by Arthur Conan Doyle in 1897, 
titled Sherlock Holmes. William Gillette, an American actor and playwright in New York, adapted Doyle's stage play for American audiences who wanted melodramatic stories about stoic, strong heroes keeping their wits about them in both dangerous and romantic situations. Gillette played Sherlock Holmes and introduced the underslung calabash pipe, the double-billed deerstalker cap, the lurid dressing gown, the magnifying glass, and the violin, now all icons associated with Holmes. Portrayed by Gillette, Holmes was quietly in command, graceful under pressure, careful and conscientious in appearance, economical with movement, distinctive of voice, even while struggling with his own boredom with life. Gillette's stage play was adapted for radio by Orson Welles and broadcast 25 September 1938 as episode number 12 of the Mercury Theater on the Air. Based on this pedigree, Reimagined Radio celebrates the immortal Sherlock Holmes. So far, Professor Moriarty has set two deadly traps for Holmes. Will Moriarty be successful? Will Holmes be killed? Let's continue our story and learn what happens. It was exactly nine o'clock when Sherlock Holmes left the house in Baker Street. He gave the strictest instructions that no one was to follow him. If there was no word from him by noon the following day, Watson was to notify Scotland Yard. Watson went to the window and watched after Holmes as he proceeded down Baker Street. A tall, thin figure in a grey Ulster overcoat, walking with long, smooth steps in the direction of Langham Place. There, he entered a cab. Here, what's that? Basic? Yes, sir, Professor Moriarty. This is Larrabee. Hello. He's in on this job. Is everything ready? Our target tonight is most accomplished. You have not said whom we are expecting, sir. Sherlock Holmes. We're going to kill him here in the gas chamber. Well, if you don't and he gets away, you will be quite sorry, that's all. Now, let's check everything. What's that door, Bassock? A small cupboard, sir. No outlet? None whatever, sir. That window? Oh, nailed down, sir. A man might break the glass. If he did, he'd come up against heavy iron bars outside. The room is airtight? Every crevice is sealed, sir. Check the gas. Yes, sir. Here goes. Ready? Turn it on. That will do. Turn it off. Five minutes of that, all our troubles are ended. No mistakes tonight, Basic. Oh, I'll be careful of that, sir. Good. When you turn the gas on him, you leave by this door? Yes, sir. 
It can be made quite secure. Heavy bolts on the outside, sir. Solid oak bars overall. Mr. Larrabee, you understand. Basic waits for you. I understand, sir. I give you this opportunity to sell him the packet of letters you forged and get what you can for your trouble. A few hundred pounds doesn't interest me, Mr. Larrabee. What I want is Holmes. I understand, sir. When you've finished and got your money, you whistle, and Basic will come in. Let's hear it. You hear that, Basic? And, Basic, at the proper moment, present my compliments to Mr. Sherlock Holmes and say that I wished him a pleasant journey to the other side. <laughs> Good night, gentlemen. Good night, sir. All right, Basic. Clear? When you hear the whistle, in you come. All right, you are, sir. I'll give just one more look about the room, sir. Here, what's this? <coughs> How did you get in? And what are you doing there in the back, eh? What is it, Basic? A woman, here in the back. Bring her in. Come on, you. <coughs> come on. Uh, <coughs> <coughs> Uh, so, it's you, Miss Faulkner. How did you get to this place? I followed you in a cab. What have you been doing since I came up here? Informing the police, perhaps? No. I was afraid he'd come, so I waited. To warn him, I suppose. Yes, to warn him, yes. You're going to swindle and deceive him, sell him a packet of false letters, I know that. What else are you going to do to him? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? Basic, come here. Tie her up so she can't make a noise. Shh, listen. That's him. He's coming. What? Holmes? That's him. That's the signal. We won't have time to get her out. Shut her in there. In the cupboard. Yeah, that'll do. In with her. Into the cupboard. Lock it with your knife. That'll hold her. Now, get out. Quick, quick. Good evening, Mr. Holmes. Ah, oh, Mr. Larrabee. Ha. Now, really, I certainly thought after all this driving around in a closed cab, you'd show me something new. Seen it before, have you, Mr. Holmes? Well, a time or two. Now that I come to think of it, I nabbed a friend of yours in this place a while back. He was trying to drop himself out the window. Ned Colvin, the cracksman. Colvin? Colvin? Uh, never heard of him before. Well, you certainly never heard of him after, I'm sure of that. A brace of counterfeiters used to these luxurious chambers in the spring of 89. One of them hidden that cupboard. We pulled him out by the heels. Quite interesting. But times have changed since then. Ah, so they have, Mr. Larrabee, so they have. Then it was only cracksmen, counterfeiters, pickpockets, and petty swindlers of various kinds. And a murder or two in the very peculiar kind. I've always had a suspicion. That's it. My surmise was correct. It is. It is 
What? This room is caulked. Sealed. What does that signify to us? Nothing to us, Mr. Larrabee. Nothing to us, but it, it might signify a good deal to some poor devil who's been caught and gassed in this trap. Well, if it's nothing to us, suppose we leave it alone and get to business. My time is limited. Of course. I should have realized that these reflections could not possibly appeal to you. I have a cigar, Mr. Holmes. Ah, oh, thanks. A good cigar, this, Mr. Larrabee. Genuine Havana. Glad you like it. Now, here is the little packet of letters which is the object of this meeting. How much will you give? A thousand pounds. I couldn't take it. Mr. Larrabee, strange as it may appear, my time is limited as well as yours, and I have brought with me the sum of one thousand pounds, which is all that I wish to pay. If it is your desire to sell it at this figure, kindly appraise me of the fact at once. If not... For me to wish you a very good evening. Well? You can have it. It's too small a matter to haggle over. Give me the money. Ah. Certainly. <laughs> now, I've got you where I want you, James Larrabee. You've been so cunning and so cautious and so wise, we couldn't find a thing to hold you for. But this little slip will get you in for sure. Oh, you'll have me in, will you? What are your views about being able to get away from here yourself? I do not anticipate any particular difficulty. <laughs> Even if you got away from here, you haven't got a witness... You haven't got a witness to your name. I'm not so sure about that, Mr. Larrabee. Do you usually fasten this cupboard door with a knife? Come away from that door. Miss Faulkner. <laughs> Stand back, you contemptible scoundrel. What does this mean? I'll show you what it means. Cuss it quick. Oh, I'm afraid you're badly hurt, Miss Faulkner. Mr. Holmes, look behind you. Get him. You'd better listen to me, Mr. Holmes. We're going to tie you down nice and tight to the top of that table. Why, you surprise me, gentlemen, thinking you're so sure of anybody being kept in this room. You're not going to get out of here, Holmes. Why, there are so many ways, Mr. Larrabee, that I hardly even know which one to choose. Well, you'd better choose quick. I can tell you that. I'll choose at once, Mr. Bassick, and my choice is... This chair, which I shall use to smash the light. My God, he smashed the light. He's getting away in the dark. Stop. Look out. Basic. Look at his cigar. He's going for the window. He's up on the ledge. He's climbed up by the window. Look at his cigar. Get him. Quick, after him. No, gentlemen. No, not by the window. I'm leaving by the door. <laughs> And by the way, I left my cigar for you on the windowsill. Good evening, gentlemen. Come along, Miss Faulkner. There was no news of Holmes that night or the next morning. Watson had a busy morning at his office in Harley Street. 
It was after eleven before the last of his appointments were over, and still no news of Holmes. Sorry, I can't see anybody just now. Let the old man come in, can't you? We're bringing him in. There ain't nowhere else for him to go. He's got to come in. We can't leave him out in the street, can we? Oh, me leg. Oh, me leg. All right, bring him in. Over to this chair, please. Oh, no, no, I'll sit here. No, no, this is the chair, sir. Now the doctor will have a look at you. Here's the doctor. That isn't a doctor. Yes, it is a doctor. Here, Doctor, you just come in and have a look at this old bloke, will you? He's hurt himself a little. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? My hat? My hat? Never mind your hat. I will mind my hat and I'll hold you responsible. There's your hat and in your hand. Go and sit down. That isn't my hat. You're responsible. I'll have you arrested. Here, come back. I can't stick around here, you know. I've got to go and tend to my bleeding nose. Driver, wait for me. I must see if he is badly hurt. Yes, sir. Now, my friend, if you'll just sit quiet for one moment, I'll have a look at you. Well, stay still, will you? Well, how can I... Remarkable, remarkable weather we're having, eh, hey, Doctor? Holmes? What on earth? Holmes, <laughs> is that really you? Quite so, my dear fellow, quite so. But, but I regret to say that uh, up to the present time, Professor Moriarty himself has not risen to the bait. Where do you think he is? In the open streets, under some clever disguise, watching for a chance to get me. Uh, pull, pull down that blind, Watson. I, I don't care to be shot at from the street. I imagine we shall hear from Professor Moriarty very soon now. Mr. Holmes, Mr. Holmes! What did I tell you? He's come, sir. From where? The house across the street. He was in there watching these windows. He must have seen something before he's just come out. There was a cab waiting for him in front of his house, sir. And he's climbed in up and changed places with the driver. Uh, get out again quick, Billy, and, and keep your eye for him. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Watson, can you uh, let me have a rather heavy suitcase for a few moments? I, I won't do it any harm. Yes, uh, my large Gladstone over there in the corner. Uh, you you are welcome to use that. Ah, thank you, Watson. Uh, put it down there. Thank you so much. Uh, Watson, you ordered a cab a short time ago. It's been waiting, I believe. I believe it has. Be so good as to tell the driver to come in here and get a valise for when he comes. Uh, uh, tell him that that's the one. Straight away. Be right back. All right. I'm coming. I'm coming. Yes, yes. Cabby. Right in, this way. Ah, oh, uh, this bag. I want uh, taken down to the street. Right you are, Governor. Right you are. Here, driver, just let me uh, tighten up these straps a bit. Then, uh, oh, there we are. That's right. Uh, I'll, I'll hold it, driver. You pull the strap. Just a, a few things in this bag I wouldn't like to lose. Right you are, sir. And it's just as well to make quite sure. Is it not, Professor Moriarty? By means of a simple pair of handcuffs... Blast you, Holmes. <sighs> Do you imagine, Sherlock Holmes, that this is the end? I ventured to dream that it might be. Inspector Foreman will be here shortly to take you away, and we shall see. We shall see. (laughs) 
And so, my dear Watson, ends the strange case of Miss Alice Faulkner. Why, Holmes, I am surprised indeed that you call her by name, suggesting you allow her some significance. <laughs> Not love, mind you, as I have observed that emotion is abhorrent to your cold, precise, but admirably balanced mind. You are the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the world has seen. But you never speak of the softer passions, save with a jibe and a sneer. And yet, there is one woman who seems to draw the spark. And that woman is the late Irene Adler, of dubious and questionable memory. Well, now, what about the letters? Oh, the letters. Uh, they were returned to their rightful owner over an hour ago. I suspected from the start that Miss Faulkner was really a nice girl at heart. Oh, dear. What is it, Holmes? I was just reflecting, my dear Watson, with Moriarty out of the way, London, from the point of view of criminal expert, is likely to become singularly uninteresting city. One's morning paper, a veritable wilderness of boredom. Mr. Holmes, Mr. Holmes. Uh, yes, Billy. It's a lady, sir. Been waiting for an hour. She says she's got to see you, sir. Case of murder, she says. She's got her face veiled. From which I deduce that she is a lady of over 41 and less than 45, of a strange dark beauty and considerable social eminence, and that she has lived for some years in the Near East, and that she is now wearing a large blood ruby on the second finger of her left hand? Holmes, how do you know these things? It's amazing. Elementary, my dear Watson. The child's play of deduction. That concludes my telling of my story regarding my husband's collaboration with the great Sherlock Holmes. If I've been too personal or subjective, I ask for your indulgence. If I have successfully achieved my goal of providing an informative and engaging narrative, I thank you for the opportunity and appreciate your time and attention. Now, if you will excuse me, I hear my husband at the front door. This is Reimagined Radio. You listened to the immortal Sherlock Holmes, a celebration of a detective who will always be immortal, despite the fact that he never lived. Arthur Conan Doyle, tired of Sherlock Holmes and wishing to shift his focus to other writing projects, sought to kill off Holmes in The Final Problem, first published in 1893. A final battle between Holmes and Professor Moriarty saw both men fall from a dangerous ledge above a high waterfall. Both men were presumed dead. Holmesian fans would have nothing to do with this, and so Doyle returned Holmes in The Hound of the Baskervilles, a novel published in The Strand magazine between 1901 and 1902. Cleverly, Doyle set the time frame before Holmes's death, so his character continued to live. Since then, thousands of detective stories written by authors other than Conan Doyle have been turned into films, television programs, stage and radio plays, video games, and other media. 
The Guinness Book of World Records notes Sherlock Holmes as the most portrayed literary human character in film and television history, with more than 75 actors playing Holmes in over 250 productions. Examples include Agatha Christie's fictional detective Hercule Poirot, as well as anti-hero gentleman thieves like A.J. Raffles and Arsène Lupin. Film adaptations starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, the BBC One TV series Sherlock starring Benedict Cumberbatch, an elementary set in contemporary New York starring Johnny Miller and Lucy Liu as a female Dr. Watson, continue to assure the immortality of Sherlock Holmes. As we have tried to illustrate in this episode of Reimagined Radio, the immortal Sherlock Holmes, performed by Metropolitan Performing Arts, Holmes's popularity and his fame as a detective makes it easy for us to believe him real. The cast included Kristen Heller as narrator Mary Watson, Greg Schilling as foreman, Bosick, and cab driver, Holland Hoskins as Billy, Nick Deatori as James Larrabee, Laura Harris as Alice Faulkner, Derek Nolan as Professor James Moriarty, Sebastian Hoskins as Dr. John Watson, and William Johnson as Sherlock Holmes. Michael Burris provided the viola music throughout. This episode was directed by Barbara Richardson. Sound design and post-production by Mark Rose of Fuse Audio Design. Social media by Regina Carroll Social Media Management and Photography. Graphic design by Holly Slocum Design. This has been a production of Reimagined Radio. Our live performances, web streaming, and radio broadcasts of sound-based storytelling are heard on local, regional, and international community radio stations. A big thanks to listeners whose contributions support programs like Reimagined Radio. If you would like to help support radio storytelling, please visit your community radio station's website and engage with the Donate button. For more information about Reimagined Radio, all our episodes past and present, and to subscribe to our snappy email newsletter, please visit our website, www.reimaginedradio.net. That's www.reimaginedradio, all one word, no punctuation, .net. This is John Barber, producer and host. Thank you so much for listening, and please join us again for another episode of Reimagined Radio, where we will continue our exploration of radio as a storytelling medium. This is Jack Ward, and from everyone here at the Mutual Audio Network, we wish you all safety and protection during the COVID-19 outbreak. Join us as we listen and imagine, and together we'll make it through this. Please be safe.